0: Please take up your Bibles now and turn to the book of Revelation. Um, we are in continuing through Revelation 13. We're going to begin in verse 11 today. Um, and just a couple weeks ago, since we looked at the beginning of verse 13, even on back to, to chapter 12, as we are in this fourth vision, which is a kind of a series of small or many visions, a series of seven small visions, Seven's an important number, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we already have a little bit later. But um, in this series, there are these seven visions. And we've, we've looked at it from the context of you have the dragon who has come, who has attacked the church with the Old Testament church and trying to stop the Messiah from coming and the New Testament church to stop the growth of God's kingdom in this world. Um, and he is setting up, he is mimicking God in his work, and he has set up a uh, an anti-trinity, if you will, of the, the dragon and the two beasts. And so we are covering the third beast in this today. And we will look at this in light of that larger forest of this particular vision and the rest of the book of Revelation. And so let's keep that in mind as we read Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Let us pray. Our God and Father, as we come upon this passage and we have lots of questions and questions that have been argued over millennia, we ask that you would give us clarity, help us to not get focused on the limbs and the leaves and the trees, but to see the glory of the forest that you have planted for us to see the forest of your sovereignty over history, the forest of your victory, even in light of seeming defeat, the forest of your glory as history works out toward your intended purpose. So Lord, as we consider this passage today, we do ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit to give us clarity. Give me clarity as I speak. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the saying, you know, don't lose the forest for the trees and talking about oftentimes as we study scriptures and we study passages in scripture that we can get lost looking at the teeny tiny details. And um, today we are going to look at some details, but we're also going to try and keep the forest in mind, the idea of God's sovereignty over everything. And one of the things that clues us in in the book of Revelation is that first vision, those letters to the seven churches. Many commentators see those seven letters as kind of the outline of the rest of the book of Revelation, or at least it brings up for us themes and ideas that we see repeated throughout the book of Revelation. Today, we are going to see this beast from the land that comes up, and we're going to learn about him and learn a little bit about what he does and and how he works and the purpose for which he works. And oftentimes we think of these false prophets as Openly demonic and antagonistic to the church and antagonistic to Christianity as they support the work of the political engine of the beast from the sea. And many times that is true. Sometimes these false prophets, these people will be easy to see, easy to be found. But as we look at the letters to the churches in the opening vision, we need to remember that this is a letter written to the church. It's not written to the world at large, it is written to the church. And what is the warning linked to prophecy? The beast from the land is later called in Revelation 16, 13 and Revelation 19, 20. He is called a false prophet, which will ultimately be defeated by Jesus when he returns. But what related to prophecy do we see in those first seven letters? Well, we see a call to avoid false teaching within the church. Three of the churches, Ephesus, Pergamum and Thyatira, It is explicitly mentioned that they are either warned against false teaching and putting it aside, or Ephesus is commended for expelling the false teachers from the church. Two of the churches, Sardis and Laodicea, false teaching is not explicitly mentioned, but you could argue that they lost their footing because of an embrace of false teaching. For Laodicea, the false teaching that as long as they are successful, as long as the church pews are full, God loves them and everything's okay. As we look today, as you look today at the earth monster and keep his demise in mind, we need to remember that Satan wants to deceive the world so that people will follow him to hell. And that does not exclude the church. He will try many ways to infiltrate the church with false teaching and in order to destroy the effectiveness of the church and to keep God's kingdom from expanding. And so you will learn today that we should always be on guard against both the blatant and and the subtle false teaching so that you can be found obedient and faithful. So John has seen a dragon. He's seen the dragon call forth a beast from the ocean, from the sea, from the chaos of this world. And now the dragon calls forth a monster from the land. And this monster is is somewhat similar to the beast from the sea and also to the dragon. We have seen from the beast of the sea that That even though he's a separate beast, he resembles the dragon and the ten horns and the seven heads. And we see that this beast itself uh, has two horns, which we'll cover here in just a minute. But he also has a voice. He speaks like the dragon. And as he comes up from the earth, as he raises up, he has the same power and authority that the dragon and that the beast from the sea have. And this is a power and authority that is under control. It's it's a third person here that he is given the power. He doesn't have it within himself. It is a power that the beast has given, that all the beasts are given. And it reminds us that while Satan has great power and great influence in this world, it is a power and an influence that is under a control and authority of somebody far greater than him. The battle between God and Satan is not a battle of equals. It is a battle of the all-powerful, sovereign God, and his defeated enemy, already defeated in the cross. Now, not only do these two beasts share power and authority, but they also share a common goal. And, and John tells us in here that that goal there is the deception of the nat- nations. It says here, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth or the earth dwellers, that, fra- that phrase that John uses to remind us that there's a difference between the children of God and those who have not been called according to God's purpose. Now, we see that as they share this goal of deceiving the nations, we see that one beast, the sea beast, does this through the earthly kingdoms that are at odds with God, while the land beast shows us the false religions and false philosophies, philosophies that are used by the dragon to deceive the nation. We saw that the beast has two horns. And this should remind us either of Daniel's vision of the ram in Daniel chapter 8, or since it says he has two horns like a lamb, we, sh- we may also see and hear the beast mimicking our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was the perfect lamb who took away the sins of the world. And yet, having these horns that remind us of the lamb, we are told that he speaks like the dragon, he speaks to deceive. John in his gospel he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, and, and they've they've come to him with a question, and he says, You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. And so we see here this beast from the land speaking the lies, speaking the deception of his father, the devil, as he works on behalf of turning the hearts of the people to worship uh, the beast. Well, how exactly will he deceive the nations? As somebody who comes as a false prophet, he will do so two ways. He will do so through false religions, which deceive humanity by pointing you away from your need for a savior and convincing you that you are capable of providing your own work and righteousness so that you can earn salvation. Everybody says, or you hear out in the world that you know all religions are basically the same. They all bring us to God. All religions do point us to our need for a God, But their answer to that need is vastly different. All other religions point to your own ability to be righteous, your own ability to be good enough for God to say, hey, you've lived a really good life. Come and live with me into eternity. It is Christianity that says we cannot do it on our own. God is infinitely righteous. And our natural tendency is to only be unrighteous all the time, we are told in Genesis 8, and also in the book of Jeremiah. Genesis 6, excuse me. And so the false religions of this world say, you feel that emptiness within your sight. You feel that something's wrong between you and however you want to define God. Well, work hard enough, and you can make that up that difference on your own. The God of the Bible says, you can't do it. There is an infinite chasm between you and me, and yet I will provide the bridge over that chasm so that you and I can be reconciled, so that you and I can be right in our relationship and you can be my child for eternity. Outside of false religion, this false prophet also uses the false philosophies of our world. It does away with all the God stuff. And it says, look, you are good enough in and of yourself. You yourself are good enough period for anything that you need. False religion and false philosophies both point us to our own ability to save and to redeem ourselves. And so we have to be careful against the lies of the false prophet. But we have a tool for that. Actually, we have more than a tool. We have a person. In John 14, 6, a passage that so many of us know so well, but oftentimes overlook the meaning of this, of Jesus for false teaching, against false teaching. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. When you are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, your heart is, Is changed, your mind is changed, so that now you are in tune with truth. And you can know. Yes, we study, we pray, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and that changed heart, even the newest of Christians has the ability because they are united to the truth that Jesus is. Doesn't just speak truth, doesn't just know truth, he is truth. And when you are united to that, your heart is tuned to the truth so that you can then begin to discern between false teaching and true teaching. Unfortunately, you and I oftentimes will ignore false teaching and embrace it because sometimes life is easier with false teaching, or at least we think it is. And yet God, in his love for us, in in his fact that Jesus is not only the truth, but he is also the way and the life, he always gently and sometimes a little bit less than gently brings us back to his way so that we might be in his truth and avoid the false teaching. What is the goal of this false teaching? What is the goal of this deception? Ultimately, it's worship. One theologian in the past has said that we are, humans are worshiping beings. We worship, that's what we do. It's how we're defined, it's how we were created. We were created to worship. We either worship God, or we worship the things of this world. Sometimes the things of this world is merely ourselves. As we think, you know, I'm the, I'm the most important person in the world and everybody should bow to my whims and to my wishes. You get eight, 8 billion people in this world that all think that exact same thing. It becomes a very difficult world to live in. It becomes as difficult as you would expect it to be with 8 billion different people pursuing their own will, their own wants, their own desires. We worship. The question is, what do you worship? And the goal of the false prophet is to tell you that false worship, the worship of the beast, the worship of this anti-Trinity is the way that things are supposed to be. Did God really say was the first thing that Satan said to humanity, causing them to question God's law, causing them to question God's truth and turn their focus from God into themselves. And he's still about the same work today. And we're told that he has some pretty powerful tools in his toolbox in order to make this work. The first, he says, is that he can perform miracles. He performs great and miraculous signs that says even going so far as to call fire down from heaven. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Satan can perform miracles. He can do the supernatural things that many times we think only come from God. It, it's, it's something that we just in our world today, just don't really think about that. But, you know, oftentimes it's not miracles as we think of somebody coming back from the dead or being healed or some supernatural event. Sometimes it's just a a weird cure for a specific illness or things like that, or mental disorders. there are so many various ways and competing ways that people around the world today look at mental disorders, which are real, which are powerful, and yet we can be sucked into treatments that seem to work on the surface and yet draw us away from God through their false teaching. We have to be very careful uh, in our pursuit of cures and protections in this world. So he performs great miracles, but he also acts like a false prophet. The phrase great and miraculous signs is a reference back to Exodus 4:17 and Exodus. 4:30 and 10:2 where Moses is described as performing great and miraculous signs the calling down of fire from heaven a sign of judgment should refer us back to Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 38 and 39 the two main prophets of the old testament their their signs their symbols are seen in the beast from the land and so he is going to have a prophetic voice He is going to have a pulpit, so to speak, to stand in and to proclaim from, and he will act as a prophet with all the signs and symbols of the prophet, except for the fact that he will turn your worship away from the God of the universe and to the things of this earth. We read from Deuteronomy 13 earlier that that has happened since the beginning of God's people and will continue to happen until Jesus returns. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 that there will be false prophets, there will be false teachers, there will even be people coming claiming to be him, but do not be deceived. The work of the prophet, both Elijah, Moses, and the other prophets of the Old Testament was to point people to repentance and to worship. The job of the New Testament minister, pastor, teacher who has a prophetic work but is not a prophet is to turn your hearts toward repentance and worship of God. So the beast seeks to bring worship to the dragon through his great and miraculous signs, through acting like a false prophet and through economic pressures. We're getting there. We're getting closer to the mark and to the number. Just rest with me here. The mark there, he says, is a mark that is placed on either the right hand or the forehead of the people. And the word there for mark is a word that was used to describe the the image of Caesar that would have been stamped in the coins of the day. To remind you that every time you reached in your pocket and pulled out a coin to pay for whatever it was you were going to pay for, you'd see Caesar's picture right there. To remind you that somebody was in control of you. Somebody ruled over you. Somebody was sovereign over your life. And that's the picture that we have of this mark that either goes on the right hand or on the forehead. The right hand in the in this time period was a symbol of friendship and fellowship. We still have that today, do we not? Hi, my name's Ike, how are you doing? Which hand do we stick out? It's always our right hand. It's a symbol of friendship. It's a symbol of fellowship. It's a symbol of You are safe in my presence and we have a bond. As light as that bond may be, because this is the first time I've shook, shook your hand or the thousandth time I've shook your hand. Whatever that bond is, we have a bond. To have your hand marked is to show that you are a friend and in fellowship with the one who has marked your hand. To have the mark on your forehead is a symbol that your thoughts, your philosophies, Your worldview, your theory of existence is controlled by the person who has marked you. That's why we have in Deuteronomy chapter 6, after you have, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength, all your mind and all your strength. The next thing he says is, teach your children these truths. Write them on your forehead. Put them on the doorpost of your heart. Write them on your forearm. It's to remind us that it's God's truth that fills his people, fills their thoughts, fills their work, fills their fellowship, their play, their family life. Everything is shaped by the law that God has given. Satan mimics everything that God has done. And so he puts a mark, he puts a seal upon his people, just as we learned in in uh, Revelation seven, and we'll see it again in Revelation 14 and again in Revelation 22, that those who call themselves the children of God, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are sealed and are protected by him, by the writing of his name and the name of our savior upon their forehead. A spiritual, symbolic writing, a spiritual, symbolic marking, which in parallel to this mimicry of the beast, reminds us that this is a symbolic spiritual marking. I grew up, I remember I was probably 11 or 12, and asked my preacher at the time, asked my pastor, I said, can you teach me about the end times? I've read through Revelation, it's really confusing. And he gave me the scariest comic book I think I've ever read. It was Salem Kirbin 666 in, in comic book form. And there were people running around with 666 tattooed all over their head and 666 tattooed on their arms. And people that didn't have it were getting beheaded and all this stuff. And it scared this poor 10 year old, 12 year old. But the reality is, is that just as the sealing that God puts on us, that seal that God gives us is a spiritual reality. The seal is a spiritual reality as well. It, makes it, it, it works itself out for the first century church that's reading this and learning that if they don't have the seal, they can't buy food, they can't buy clothing, they can't go to the stores. They would have known exactly what that meant. Because every time you wanted to go to work for the guild or you wanted to go to the food market or you wanted access to finances in ancient Rome, you had to drop a little bit of incense on the altar and you had to say Caesar is Lord. The Christian cannot say Caesar is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. And so the the Christians in the first century would have understood that what he's talking about here is there is worship of the beast in the form of the kingdom and all the religious stuff that goes with the kingdom that if it doesn't happen, I may not eat tomorrow. I may not have a place to work tomorrow. I may not have a place to live tomorrow. It's a reality that the first century church lived in. Many Christians around the world live in that same reality today. If you were to go to China, We we talk about credit scores and how important it is to have a credit score in our country. China has what they call a social credit score. The government sifts through all your social media interaction. Their facial recognition cameras exist all over the place. They watch where you go. They watch who you talk to. Many times, if you have your phone with you, they can listen to everything you say. And if it doesn't agree with the party line, you can't buy groceries. You can't access your checking account. You may lose your freedom. It's that picture there that you either tow the, the earthly party line and get all the benefits that you could possibly want or you remain faithful and obedient to God. And You may lose earthly benefits, but the heavenly benefits can't be beat. So once again, we are reminded here that there is no middle ground. You are either sealed by God or you are marked by the beast. Political power and propaganda oftentimes go hand in hand, and we have to beware of the temptation to compromise for power in this world. This bleeds into the church when we hear preachers stand in the pulpit and say, yes, God cares about sin, but not those that he wrote about thousands of years ago. Those don't count anymore. Or a hyper focus on God's love while forgetting that he is also holy and just. Or a myriad of other ways that false teachings creep into the church. So the beast from the land works to be the prophet, to turn the hearts of the people to worship the beast, the dragon and the beast from the sea as the kingdom of Satan is set up on this earth. And he does so through prophetic through miraculous works and through economic coercion. Well, here's the moment everybody's been waiting for. John identifies him for us. Now he says he opens up with this calls for wisdom and if anybody has insight and sometimes we put that in the wrong place. If we go back to uh, verse 10, at the end of the description of the beast of the sea, John calls this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. What calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints? The work of the sea beast, the sea monster in the political realm. So what would call for wisdom here? The work of the propaganda machine of the beast from the land. We have to be wise to make sure that we don't miss the false teaching that so easily creeps in so easily creeps into the church. And then John gives us this number. Now, There are at least two areas in Revelation where if John had just written another sentence, maybe two, we'd have been so much better off. In Revelation 7, 14, he talks about the great uh, the great number of people, the great multitude in heaven that have come out of the great tribulation. And if he had just said what he meant by great tribulation, life would have been a lot easier. Here we have a very similar thing. He gives us this number, he says, for it is man's number his number is 666 and some manuscripts, it says in your footnote um, or in some footnotes, it says it may be 616. And we'll, we'll explain the difference of the numbers here in just a minute. And if he would have just taken a little bit of time, maybe another sentence or two to say, hey, and this is what I mean by that number, we'd have been a lot better off. But here we are. So before we look at this number, I want us to keep something in mind. And that is humility. We often wonder when in the history of the church, confusion over this number crept in. And beginning somewhere around 150 to 200 A.D., ministers within the church started preaching different interpretations and different meanings of the number 666. Think about that for just a minute. This book was written in 90 A.D., between 90 and 100 years, or between 90 and 100 A.D., So within 60 to 110 years after this was written, within one generation, there was already arguments and confusion over what the number 666 666 means. And we haven't figured it out in 2,000 years. The humility comes in is because this is one of those trees. Actually, it's kind of a leaf on a tree that we get so hyper-focused on that we miss the forest for In light of Satan's persecution, in light of earthly persecution against the church, God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, he calls us to live faithfully and obediently to him. Faithful to his truth. Don't fall prey to the false prophet and obediently to his law. Don't compromise for power in this world and prestige in this world. We can get so hyper-focused on what these three numbers are piece together mean that we can lose sight of that that's the forest in light of the persecution of satan live faithfully and obediently um, most of the things that we bring up today in our discussion over what it 666 means have been discussed for close to 2,000 years there truly is nothing new under the sun two two main thoughts these days um, one I've already touched on is that there will literally be a tattoo with 666 either on your forehead or on your right hand. Um, in the context of the book of Revelation, markings and ceilings are a symbolic thing. And so it points more to your allegiance. It points more to who you are in fellowship with. Are you in fellowship with God or Satan in the world? The other prevalent idea is that it says... It is man's number and his, his number is 666. And so people take 666 in a practice that was somewhat used throughout this time period when this was written to where you would assign numbers to every letter in a person's name and you'd add them all up and that would be that person's name. Over 2,000 years, we've tried to work backwards from that. We don't have the name, we just have the number. And so over 2,000 years, can you imagine how many names fit that number? A lot. There have been multiple popes. There have been multiple emperors. Hitler's name even fits that particular pattern if you do the math right. But one that comes up frequently is Nero, the Caesar that ruled in Rome in the 60s from about 60 AD to about 68 AD. And he was a bad man. He was a horrible man. He... uh, Uh, He would throw parties in the garden and when the sun would go down and he would light lamps. Unfortunately, the lamps in the garden were Christians dipped in oil. Um, And that was just one of the easiest, lightest things that he did. And so this may be referring to Nero. I am okay with that or at least somebody who's going to come along and act like Nero in the horrors that he placed upon the church and upon Christianity. But... There's just a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through in order for 666 to to equal Nero. You have to add a title to it, which typically wasn't added. You have to take it and translate it from Latin into Greek and then from Greek into Hebrew, and you have to drop one of the Hebrew letters that's typically used in order to get the math to work out. Um, There's a lot of hoops to jump through to get Nero Caesar to equal 666. So we just have to be careful. So in humility, I'll give you the explanation that gives me the most peace, the most just kind of mental rest as I consider it. And it does center around numbers, but it centers around numbers that we've already considered. What's John's favorite number in the book of Revelation? It's it's seven. Yeah, there are seven visions. There are seven seals in one of the visions. There are seven churches in one of the visions, seven trumpets in one of the visions, seven many visions in one of the visions, seven bowls in one of the visions, seven blessed are those statements or beatitudes throughout the book of Revelation. And when we looked at the seven seals, the vision of the seven seals, we saw that the scroll sealed with the seven seals was God's sovereign plan for history from the return of Christ to or from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ satan is in the business of mimicking god which may mean that he has a plan for history as well where he wins at the end in whole numbers what falls short of seven six and anytime you put three things together in the scripture it means it is perfectly that thing so holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was who is who is to come god is the most holy thing in the universe who's the most failing thing in the universe? The person marked by 666, Satan himself. He has a plan and it is ultimately failing and will fail. And this gives me rest because it fits into the context of what John is saying in the book of Revelation. His call to the Christian is to live faithfully and obediently in light of the fact that regardless of what Satan does, it has and will fail every single time. And so that is my particular view on the 666. But once again, right or wrong, the interpretation of that particular number does not have a bearing on the call to the Christian to live faithfully and obediently in this world. Yes, he's active. Yes, his goal is to destroy the church and get as many people to worship him rather than God as he possibly can. The child of God will face the two-pronged attack of political power and false teaching in this world, but neither of those have any claim if you have been sealed by God. We've seen this already in Revelation 7. We saw it in the measurement of the temple and God's people within the temple in Revelation 11. We'll see it again in the next sermon on Revelation 14, one through five. And we'll see it at the end of time when Christ returns as he gathers all of those who were sealed to him to his holy presence for all of eternity. And it matters not a whit, the name of the person tied to 666 for any of that to happen. So we approach it with humility and grace. As we look at the beast from the land, we are called to be on guard against both blatant and subtle false teaching so that you can be found obedient and faithful. I spent a lot of time, a lot of my young life, scouring headlines looking for that one demonic guy who was going to threaten to put 666 on my forehead. And I missed a lot of faithfulness and obedience because of it. The temptation is to get so focused on the leaves and the trees that we miss God's glorious plan. And we, we are tempted in focusing on those things to turn our back on faithfulness, obedience. Don't be be so caught up in trying to, to filter through the headlines and figure out who this demonic leader is that you let the subtle lies of the world seep into your thought life, into your church life. Churches today have been compromising because for many of them in America, 200 years ago, they began to just focus on the little things that didn't matter and forgot the important things that did. God calls us in the book of Revelation to be faithful and obedient in light of the fact that Jesus has defeated the power of the devil on the cross. That is the call in this passage. That is the call in the rest of the book of Revelation. The beast may be powerful. The beast may do horrible things to the church, to the people of God, but the beast is defeated. And you are safe, sealed by God as his child. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for your word. We, we, I thank you for these difficult passages that make me wrestle, that make us look and say, where are you leading us? But forgive me, Lord, for the times where I have been bogged down and forgotten your call to faithful and obedient living. Help me to know that you are the truth so thoroughly help all of us in this room to know that you are the truth so thoroughly that false teaching has no chance to creep in and where it has creeped in lord we do ask that you would help us to repent and turn to you i pray this in jesus precious name amen as we leave today we do receive this blessing from god a blessing that we take on our daily walk our walk in our family and our work in our recreation, a blessing from God upon his people. So from Jude, we have this blessing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.